You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message, recorded live from our Brighton campus. This evening, I want, I'm going to look at um, Hebrews, and ch- chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn there, and that's, that's great. If not, Tyler's preparing it all, all on the screen. If you hold shift and select multiple verses, it brings them all up on the screen at the same time. <laughs> Just a tip there. Um, so we're going to look at Hebrews 4 verses 14 to 16 and what I want to do this evening is just dissect a few things in this passage um, so that we can see what this passage is all about and we can understand how it relates to our lives a little bit to how we should live as Christians and so the title of my message this evening is I am because he is I am because he is I want to look at two key elements of what Jesus is and how um, the writer in this passage, how he says that our response should be because of of who Jesus is. So our response because of his faithfulness is actually, it's what enables us to define ourselves, it's what gives us our own identities and to live as people who are not distant from God or see God as some sort of guy who's just up there in the clouds and just doing his own thing and we're just down here doing our own thing and you know maybe once or twice we interact on a Sunday or, or whatever but actually that we're intimately connected with him, we're, we're in a relationship with him, um, not distant but in, in a close relationship. So I am because he is, that's what we're looking at. Um, so if you're there, then awesome, I'm, are you on the NIV? Yes you are, there we go. It's like we planned it. Um, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Pretty cool passage. Quite like that. So Jesus is given this title of the great high priest. And you'll have to... You'll have to bear with me a little bit tonight because there's some, there's some sort of explaining of some of the stuff that goes on in the Old Testament and some of some terminology and, and all sorts of stuff like that. I'll try and make it as straightforward as possible and um, hopefully we'll all follow along and it'll be great. So Jesus gets this title, the Great High Priest. And the, the writer of, of um, this, this letter to the Hebrews, it seems with this kind of language, the writer is, is expecting us to make a connection to the high priests in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament they had these high priests that, that did various things, almost like the Archbishop of Canterbury in the Old Testament. Obviously not in Canterbury because they were in like, the Middle East. Whatever the Middle East equivalent of Canterbury. Jerusalem. That's, yes. that's clearly... I don't know if I can make that connection really. I don't know how comparable Jerusalem and um, Canterbury are, having never been to either. So, But I'm going... I'm actually going... Um, to 
to Israel and doing the whole like tour thing in I think February next year. So I can I can tell you what Jerusalem's like, and if someone else has been to Canterbury, we can compare notes and see what <laughs> see what they're like, and that'll be good. So he's trying to make us make this connection of like the high priest. If he's if he's writing to the Hebrews, there's a there's a clue in the title. If he's writing to the Hebrews, he's writing to the people who knew about the Old Testament, the people who knew what it was all about, who had this sort of this um, story sort of going around in the back of their minds. They they kind of got what he was talking about when he was talking about high priests. So there's a lot of imagery going on, and and this book's full of of imagery all over the place. But in this particular passage, even just this little tiny little chunk, there's loads of imagery going on. And so I just want to give us a tiny little bit brief bit of context so that we we sort of got something to hang this on and then we'll we'll move on so what used to happen in the old testament there were there were all these sorts of different types of sacrifices different sacrifices for different sins um, whether you did it on purpose or you did it by accident or it was something the whole community did on purpose or all these sorts of things and once a year they had this special day called the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, as they would say. And the high priest was the person who was allowed to go behind this curtain, this curtain into the most holy place, the place where God's presence was. And he was allowed to go behind this curtain in order to sprinkle some blood of a sacrifice that he had made onto what is called the mercy seat. And he'd go into this Holy of Holies. They, they would tie a rope around his waist just in case he died in the presence of God because someone else couldn't go in after him because they would die in the presence of God. So they'd, get, they'd put this rope around his waist and you know, just in case he, something happened to him, they could drag him out again and they wouldn't have to themselves die in some sort of strange comedy of errors where people were just going in and going in. And the whole, it could have been a very serious like problem for Israel if everyone was just going in one after another and, um, and falling down. So, so they made provision for that, as, as would seem logical. And so the reason that this high priest did this was to make atonement for the sins of the people during that year. And so every year they do this, so that the if you you're sort of clean on that one day of a year of the year, and then from that point on, you're sort of building up your sort of sheet of things that you've done wrong, and it's getting list getting longer and longer depending on who you are and what you, what you do, you know. And then and then once a year, you always knew that the the high priest was going to go in and he was going to make this atonement for you. So everything's good. And so. All this language is loaded in this passage onto Jesus. We've got Jesus being called the great high priest. And hopefully we'll begin to make a little bit more sense about what that looks like as we, as we go through. We should have a grounding. Essentially, this high priest is, is someone who makes right what's wrong. Puts something that's, that's wrong to rights again fixes the, the stuff that's not quite right. And that's the image that the writer is casting onto Jesus. So there are two main elements of Jesus as the great high priest that are present in this passage. We have an emphasis on his divinity, on his sonship, on his being 
um, God, the Son of God. And we have this emphasis on his humanity, on the fact that he was tested and his ability to help us when when we're in need. These two different points of emphasis. And at different points, the writer has made clear to us that these attributes of Jesus, these things about Jesus, require us to respond in some way. The first thing we come across when we look at Jesus as the great high priest is his divinity, his being God. It says that he passed through the heavens or or that he went into heaven and, and that he is the son of God. In essence, what he's saying is his sacrifice was accepted. So as just as the, the high priest would make a sacrifice for, for, for Jesus to have, have gone into the heavens, that means that his sacrifice has, has been accepted. He was exalted to the highest place. He was put up on, on the highest place. The, the writer even says in another part of this, this uh, book that he's, he sits on the throne at the right-hand side of the Father. And the writer to the Hebrews, he's not slow to, to point this out, what he's talking about here. He, from the very beginning of his letter, if you go right back to, to chapter 1, verse 1, he says that in the past, God spoke to us in various sorts of ways. Um, he spoke to us through the prophets and through the priests and all this sort of stuff. And, and he says, but now God has spoken to us through his son. His son that that the writer calls the word of God. The, the, um, the Greek word for that being logos, the New Testament was, was written in Greek so that we can get some things sometimes from the Greek words. And in the passage, just like the two verses just before what we're looking at tonight, the writer says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Jesus. See, there's, there's a long tradition of which these original readers would have been aware of, of connecting a couple of terms in the Greek. But let me just read this, this um, short passage to you. Um, it is... I'm looking at the wrong chapter, that's why I'm struggling to find it. Um, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says... For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him who we must give account. And I think in... Um, you just find the... the Slightly other version that I read previously this afternoon. Yeah, it says says that these things are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, what's going on here is there's there's a connection between this this word logos, which means word, and something that was going on way back in the Old Testament, and something that is a feminine word called Sophia. Now, we may have heard of Sophia before, maybe a friend of ours. 
maybe, or maybe not. But this, this Greek word, Sophia, is a, this feminine word meaning wisdom. And, and this word, logos, is a masculine word meaning word. And these two words, they shared this connected history. They, um, you can trace them through sort of all these, all these ancient writings. You can trace these two words and how they sort of intermingle and connect. And then we arrive at the point that we have now where on the one hand you've got Sophia as like this feminine word and the other hand you've got this logos as like this masculine word. And they sort of are kind of interchangeable. See, the wisdom of, the, of God in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, it becomes personified, it becomes a person. And the, wisdom, and the um, word of God in the New Testament, in the book of John, becomes a person, it becomes Jesus. And now what's interesting here is that Sophia, this feminine counterpart to, to Logos, is referred to as a, as a sword able to cut through foolishness. Yet here we have the word of God as the son of God, Jesus, as the greatest sword, as, as sharper than any other double-edged sword that's able to cut right to our hearts. See, whatever the world throws at us, whatever we think that we see, whatever, whatever seems to be the case, even in, even in the Bible, it points to Jesus. He is the word of God. He is alive and active. There's, a, there's even a, a sort of, sort of uh, note to the resurrection in that sense. You know, he's alive and active. He's not dead. Yeah. He's alive and active. Yeah. He is able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, it's Jesus who does that. And there's these claims that the writer is making about Jesus when he calls him the great high priest. And our response to that is that we're told to hold firm. We're told to press into that faith that we profess, that we say that, we, that we're talking about, but not in any loose sense, but in view of what, who he is and what he did for us. In a sense, it's to say that our own ability to have faith is not what we're trusting in. You know, some there's times when, you know, our faith wavers and you go, you know, oh, this situation that I'm going through, I'm really struggling with. And like, where's God in this situation? Like, how am I supposed to deal with this? But we're called to put our trust in something that's outside of our own um, understanding or our own ability to to sort of put faith into something. You know, there can be times when we struggle and we and we like, I don't really, don't really know if that's, if like, where is God? Like, what is what's happening? Why is this situation happening to me? But we're not standing on that. We're not standing on our ability to believe God for something. We're standing on God and what he's done. We're standing on Jesus and his sacrifice. Hold fast to the truth and reality that Jesus Christ is loved. It's in him that... It's, it's in him and his faithfulness that we trust into him, into what he did, who he is. He's the object of our faith. We're called to hold firm on the basis of something real and something tangible, on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's the one in whom we can have faith because he's the one who faithfully completed the task of the great high priest. 
That's what I think the writer's talking about here. Talking because he's the great high priest, you can trust in him. Because he is the son of God, you can trust in him. Because he's done this for you, you can trust in him. And the second emphasis, after excuse me going for water, my mouth gets quite dry when I'm preaching. Or talking in general, it's not, it's not like a speci- specific thing. Where <laughs> only when I preach, my mouth gets dry. The rest of the time, it's, it's uh, fine. Yeah, no, that's not the case. Um, the second emphasis is that the, the, the writer puts on to Jesus is about his humanity. And it goes a little bit like this. That Jesus is a high priest who is, because of his humanity, is fully capable to empathise with our weaknesses. He's not distant and far off, not that distant, far off divine character who hasn't engaged with humanity in any way at all. He's totally and utterly engaged with humanity. He's given up all of the stuff that made him, you know, equal with God. He put aside so that he could become a human, become like us, and he could go through the stuff that we go through. The Word became flesh. He put aside his status, he humbled himself, he became like us in order to show us how to be truly human. In that sense, he's the great high priest, because he's greater than all the other high priests, because he's the one who went through all this stuff. He understood what it's like to be human, he understood what it's like to be tempted in in all sorts of different ways, and to to come across situations where you've got a choice whether you choose choose, God's way, God's path, or you choose your own. And he chose God's way every time, you know. And that's that's something that shows us how to how to live, how to be truly a human. It's a difficult concept to grasp that the God of the universe took on flesh, became like us, took on humanity, and took on all the weaknesses and temptations and brokenness that that come alongside that. But it's something that is that is true. And he's able to fully understand what we feel. He's able to be fully present with us in our lowest moments, in our moments of self-doubt, in our moments of weakness. Whatever thing that may be, whatever that might look like, is going to look completely different for me as it is for, for all of you guys, I'm sure. Um, but he is the one who knows what that's like and he's able to minister to us in that time because he's the great high priest because he's experienced humanity in its fullest sense so he lived without sin in order that we can know what that looks like in order that he he could become this great high priest he became broken for us on the cross he defeated death in the resurrection. He saved us into sonships. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And that's like just an amazing statement right there. You know, it's we... Who, who am I that, that God is mindful of me? You know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> it's like we are loved and intimately accepted by God, which is a pretty profound thing. You could just stop there and it'd be pretty cool. But here's the point, it's because of his actions. The writer has another response for us after this. He says that because of this, because of who 
of of Jesus's humanity taking on flesh and and all this stuff because of this we should be able to approach God's throne of grace with boldness with confidence now remember right back at the beginning we talked about the high priest on the day of atonement sprinkling some sacrificial blood on on this mercy seat well that's what the writer is referencing here he's talking about through Jesus we can approach God's mercy seat with confidence now there was only one day a year in the Old Testament when someone could approach God's mercy seat and by tying a rope around your waist just in case you die it doesn't sound like it doesn't fill me with a lot of confidence (laughs) I don't think he was necessarily going in there with boldness and approaching God's throne with confidence I think he was sort of Going, I wish I probably, I wish I was like the second high priest or the medium priest. <laughs> like, you know, why did I have to get this job? Yet the writer here is saying, approach God's throne with boldness, approach it with confidence. Because of the actions of the great high priest, because of Jesus, because of what he's done, we have direct access to the Father. He's saying that we ought to be approaching God's throne and not just approaching it, but doing it with confidence because of who Jesus is. It's because of who he is that I am. You know, and you don't need, you don't need me standing up here and saying, you know, tell me all your problems and I will set, give them to God and hopefully he will deal with them. And when he tells me how he's dealt with them, then I'll you know, tell you how, how that's going for you. You know, we can approach his throne directly. We can just pray. We can just come before God and say, you know what, God, I'm really struggling with this. I've got this going on and I just need you to help me in in this situation. It's because of who he is that I am. You know, when we approach his throne of grace with confidence, we don't get struck down because of our sinful state. We get recognised as pure and clean. We're given grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. That's what it says there. You know, in other words, God ministers directly to us. There's no need for that sacrificial system anymore. No need for a mediator. We're encouraged to talk to the Father and approach him with confidence and receive his grace and mercy. Even um, when I was a kid growing up, or maybe like a teenager, I can't remember, I used to help out at a, at a kid's club and there was a song that, that um, there was a little girl singing on this song and she sounded like she must have been about seven or eight, like really young sort of voice. And she was singing this song, Talk to the Father, He's Always There. You know, how true is that, that like a little kid can get that? That like... There's no, you don't even have to be an adult. You don't even have to have, have graduated anything. You don't even have to have, have proven anything. You get direct access to God just because of who Jesus is. Yeah. You know, we're going to close here in, in just a couple of minutes. I want to say, understand that we're loved and accepted just as we are. We're made righteous through the saving act of Jesus. And there's all these sorts of 
words like righteous and, and you know mercy and grace and stuff and it's all like quite loaded language but essentially it's saying you know we are made right we're we've made friends again with God because of what Jesus has done and the Bible says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective and it's not that's not like the prayer of a priest or the prayer of of anyone special or anyone who's got it all together the prayer of a righteous person is someone who's obtained righteousness through Jesus that can be anyone it doesn't the, the whole thing about being righteous doesn't qualify, it's, it doesn't require any qualifications in any sort of way at all. Like, anyone can be righteous because we have access through Jesus. And that's, that's the point that I'm trying to make when I say because of who he is, I am. Or I am because of who he is. I'm saying that, you know, I've been made righteous not because I'm in any way special or because I do certain things that are good, but just because of Jesus, just because of what he's done for me. You know, and I stand here like I have no, in myself, I have no ability to stand in front of you all and, and say any of this stuff because, you know, I'm just as messed up as the next person. And I think we can probably all say that about ourselves. You know, we all know that there's stuff going on in our heads or stuff that we do or stuff that we say or you know we find yourself reacting in a way that you shouldn't react or or whatever it is you know but that doesn't make us any less righteous than the next person because it's Jesus who did that for us and he's the one who was tested in all these ways he's the one who was tested and didn't sin and that's how he's made us right with God that's how that's how that connection goes it's nothing, it's nothing that we've done, and it never is, and it never will be. See, just in the same way that the high priest would gain righteousness for the Hebrew people on that one day a year, Jesus won it once and for all, for all of humanity. And we put our trust into that. Now that's something real and tangible that I'm, I can put my trust in. Even when my ability to trust and have faith is wavering, that doesn't change. That always remains true. That always remains solid. <coughs> however much you've messed up, however bad you are, however much you don't have it all together, whenever you say something that's not very Christian, or someone goes, oh, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian, you're not supposed to be doing that. You're redeemed because of Jesus. And you are because of who he is. So, like, don't listen to those voices. Don't listen to people when they tell you that. Don't listen to the voice in your head that goes, oh, you know, you, God's not going to be happy with you now. Not now you've done that. Or not now you've said that. Or not now you've thought that. You know, maybe the best thing for you to do is not pray for a week. Or maybe you shouldn't go to church on Sunday because you messed up. That's not God speaking. No. That's the enemy getting in there and saying, you know, you shouldn't... <laughs> He's trying to separate you from God, but the yeah. fact is that not, we, sat, we sang it, nothing can separate us. Mm-hmm. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, and that's the point, that's in Christ Jesus. It's not in us. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was feeling when I was doing this, I was feeling like I'm covering old ground here. Like, I'm covering stuff that like we should all know this it should be it should be simple but 
the fact is we forget like as much as as much as grace is almost like an easy thing to talk about in one sense because you go well it's, it's God who's done everything for us so we'll just go with that and that's great but then actually life happens and life has a way of, of putting up barriers and going uh, I know I know you kind of think this or you kind of believe this but you've just done that or you've just done the other or you've just said this or you know or you're just such a rubbish person so there's no way that God can love you you know and I think even for me like we need to hear it again and again there's no there's no one time that we can just get this and it's just easy and we've just you know if there is a way that you've you've managed to do that and you've just got it first time please tell me about it because I would love to know <laughs> um, but the truth is I think it's something that we need to hear again and again I wanted to assure you that that you are because he is and and for me, I am because he is. And I want to move into a time of communion to respond because I feel like it's appropriate. And it's a time when we can come together as a community and say that, that we are because of who he is. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church. One church passionately loving God and people in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.